Hey there, thanks for listening to another episode of Batman v. Batuman. Sorry I'm posting this a few days late, uh, the weekend kind of got ahead of me. On the plus side, I had more time to read stuff. I got some reviews, then some news, and then, of course, an uninformed Marvel review for you. First thing I'll review this week is not DC or Marvel, it's the third issue of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's Mycroft Holmes series about Sherlock Holmes's rough around the edges, but pretty much as talented of a detective brother. In the first two issues, Mycroft was recruited by the Queen of England to to investigate a seemingly supernatural terrorist who set off a bomb in London that killed over 200 people. So to complete his mission, Mycroft heads to America, where he meets up with a heavily armed female and comes across a certain real-life outlaw. This is more of a transition issue, whereas the first two were more recommendable as standalone stories, but this moves things along pretty nicely, and is just as violent and exciting as the first two issues. Plus, we finally get to see the villain. After three issues, I would say that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is pretty much as good at writing comics as he is at playing basketball. Maybe not as good, but close. Detective Comics 943 sees the beginning of a new arc for Batman and his and his fellow Gotham crime fighters. It's kind of a slower issue. It's not very action-heavy. Um, it's kind of dealing with the fallout of the last six or so issues. There are some heavy emotional notes, and it's kind of cool to see Batman have a support system that doesn't really exist in most of the other comics and movies that we've seen him in. And this sets up this current arc, which is called the Victim Syndicate, pretty well. I look forward to seeing the next few issues, and definitely recommend Detective Comics. It's one of Rebirth's best series, and kind of a fun read if you want more gritty detective stuff than your average superhero flying around stuff. And the two best things I read this week are issues number nine of Wonder Woman and The Flash. The Flash is kind of a standalone issue. The Godspeed arc just wrapped up, which took up eight issues. And the next arc is about to start, uh, Speed of Darkness, which would be issue 10 that comes out soon. But issue nine is a really good standalone. It features both Wally West's since Rebirth now has two of them, one that is the traditional Wally West Flash and one that is the Wally West from the Flash TV show, pretty much. So you get three Flashes for the price of one, and this is one of the most emotionally resonant and well-written single issues of any comic book I've ever read. It also touches on the Rebirth event that started this whole DC Rebirth and ends with one of the coolest things that's happened in a Flash comic in the nine issues that have come out so far. Wonder Woman number 9, which uh, is an odd-numbered Wonder Woman, so it takes place in the present, as opposed to the even-numbered issues, which are more of like a year one origin story, is the penultimate issue in the Lies story arc, which has taken up the first four issues of the contemporary part of this series, this being the fifth, and sets the table really well for everything that comes next. It's sort of a breather issue, in the sense that not a lot of crazy stuff happens, it deals more with what happened in the previous issues. But as with The Flash number 9, Wonder Woman number 9 is a great standalone issue with a lot of emotionally resonant moments. So I would say both Flash and Wonder Woman number 9 are indicative of how good comic books can be outside of people getting punched and kicked and stuff blowing up. These characters really stand out in a way that makes me appreciate them more. Uh, I always liked The Flash a lot, but Wonder Woman was always on the periphery for me. Until Greg Rucka started writing this DC Rebirth series, which I gotta say, I can't really put down. It's been good stuff so far. I never thought I'd be reading nine issues of a Wonder Woman series uh, unless it was part of a collection, and yet here I am. 
My final review is for the television show, well, I guess Netflix show, Luke Cage. I will be spoiling stuff, so if you haven't watched all of Luke Cage yet and you intend to, skip forward about a minute and a half. If you recall a few episodes ago, I had a couple of episodes of this left, and uh, I gave an up-to-that-point review. And now that I'm done, my notes are not that different. The first, like, five episodes are a lot better than the rest of the series. The storytelling, which was never really that tight or consistent in the first arc, kind of gets a little sloppier. There are a couple of cool throwback moments to Luke Cage's history, which are nice, but for the most part, it's kind of a sloppy final third of the season, punctuated by a very tedious final fight. I was so happy to see Method Man pop up, and then I was so disappointed that they stretched his cameo into essentially a guest appearance that felt really forced. His rap song was fine, but nowhere near Method Man's best, and it just, again, it felt really forced. Speaking of forced, it was weird to see Luke Cage and Night Nurse end up with a romantic interest. Aside from Luke Cage's history with Jessica Jones, it just felt like, all right, here's a straight man and a straight woman that are relatively main characters in this. Slap them together. We're done. Although it certainly made more sense than Mariah and Shades. Ugh. So yeah, I guess it was kind of indicative of the final third of the season. It was just a bit lazy. I guess all in all, I don't regret watching it. I had fun watching it at times, even in the lesser episodes. But for a 13-episode show, it's kind of disappointing when there's only like four or five hours of really quality stuff. But I always have hope for the future, and I'm sure Defenders will be worthwhile, especially because that's only going to be eight episodes. So hopefully that'll clear up a lot of the storytelling issues that Netflix's Marvel shows have faced. All right, that's all I read this week, so that's about all I can review. So let's get to the news. Unfortunately, my one news item this week is bad news. The upcoming Flash movie has just lost its second director. Rick Famuyima has reportedly left due to creative differences between Warner Brothers and himself. The first director, Seth Graham Smith, quit uh, before pre-production, but at this point the Flash movie is very deep in pre-production, and to lose a director, especially one as talented as Rick, uh, who's done really good movies like The Wood and Dope, it's kind of a bummer. It's also weird because you assume that at this point there wouldn't be many creative differences for them to have. I mean, he pitched his idea of the movie months ago, and Warner Brothers apparently was cool with that, and I think his style would work really well with a Flash movie. Unfortunately, Warner Brothers disagreed, so the Flash is left directorless. Hopefully the movie doesn't get delayed. It's currently scheduled for March 18th, 2018, but now at this point without a director, that might end up getting bumped further back. Alright, time for the only segment that I have on the show, my uninformed Marvel review. This week, I decided to tackle my second ever Spider-Man story, and I read The Amazing Spider-Man issues 121 and 122. These two issues are better known by their umbrella title, The Night Gwen Stacy Died. These issues came out in June and July of 1973. They were written by Jerry Conway with art by Gil Kane. The cover of issue 121 unfortunately telegraphs the looming death as Spider-Man's patented spidey sense is tingling a warning to him that someone close to him will die. The cover has pictures of nine people Spider-Man cares about, which narrows down the potential victims to Gwen Stacy, Mary Jane Watson, Aunt May, J. Jonah Jameson, Harry Osborne, and four other people I couldn't recognize. The issue begins with Peter Parker in his Spider-Man costume, looking in through Harry Osborne's bedroom window. Harry appears quite ill and is surrounded by Gwen Stacy, Mary Jane Watson, and a doctor. 
The Doctor is a friend of Harry's father, Norman Osborn, a.k.a. the Green Goblin, one of Spider-Man's most ruthless foes, and luckily a foe I recognize from the Spider-Man movie. According to the doctor's diagnosis, Harry is suffering from clinical psychosis and schizophrenia as a result of taking too much LSD. Seems like a breach of medical ethics for him to be revealing Harry's acid overdose to Mary Jane and Gwen Stacy, but there you have it. Peter decides to visit his friend Sans costume, but he's stopped on his way in by Norman Osborn. Osborn erupts, shouting that all of this is Peter's fault and that he isn't welcome at the Osborn residence. Luckily for Spider-Man, though, Norman is suffering from some kind of mild amnesia and doesn't realize that Peter Parker is his nemesis Spider-Man, which apparently he did know prior to suffering the amnesia. This is especially fortunate for Peter Parker because Norman is the only nemesis of Spider-Man's who knows the hero's secret identity. But Norman apparently doesn't even remember his own secret identity, which is probably for the best since his son clearly needs him right now. Gwen Stacy and Mary Jane Watson hear the shouting and check it out. Norman Osborn demands that they all leave and slams the door in their faces. Gwen, Peter Parker's girlfriend, is distraught, so Peter and Mary Jane walk her down the street, trying not to discuss Norman's aggressive outburst. Back upstairs, Norman's anger is partially explained in a phone call between Osborn and his stockbroker. Apparently, his entire stock portfolio is in the dumps, and has been for a while. The Osborn fortune is slipping away, and with that on his mind and his son sick in bed, Norman is at a breaking point. Meanwhile, across town, Spider-Man is web-slinging his way to work at the Daily Bugle. He's almost late and feels ill, suffering from some kind of flu or virus he contracted a couple of issues prior to this one. He drops off some pictures as Peter Parker and gets chased out of the building by his editor, J.J. Jameson, who does not want Peter getting anyone else sick. Very sympathetic boss. Slipping back into his Spider-Man costume, Peter starts slinging his way home, eager to see his girlfriend Gwen and take a breather. Back at the Osborne residence, Norman and his doctor friend confer near a passed-out Harry, still bedridden from taking too much acid. They seem quite fatalistic about his chances of recovery, which means either the characters or writer Jerry Conway didn't do the research to find out that Harry should metabolize and recover within 24 hours of taking the drugs, but whatever. It's the 70s. Norman starts having a nervous breakdown amidst his son's health, his dire financial straits, and his paranoia that all of his bad luck is part of a plot against him. The stress makes him snap. Although Harry Osborn is the one who took the LSD, Norman has an acid flashback to fighting Spider-Man. He blames Spidey for everything and attacks the hallucination. This immense emotional weight finally flips something in his brain and the amnesia he was suffering from earlier that blocked out the Green Goblin part of his brain disappears. Everything comes flooding back, including his knowledge of Spider-Man's secret identity. Norman bursts out of his house and starts sprinting down the street towards a hidden Green Goblin lair. He suits up and loads up on jack-o'-lantern bombs, which are a fitting prop for this Halloween episode of Batman v. Batuman. Unfortunately for Peter Parker, Norman Osborn has totally snapped. He wants to kill Spider-Man, but he's so far gone that his plan has no room for any human decency. And thus, the Green Goblin kidnaps Peter's girlfriend Gwen Stacy and leaves a jack-o'-lantern bomb at the scene to taunt Spider-Man. Still sick and exhausted from slinging around town, Spider-Man has no choice but to give chase, following his spidey sense all the way to George Washington Bridge. Green Goblin is ready and waiting, looming over an unconscious Gwen Stacy on the bridge's central tower. He shouts that either Spider-Man will die tonight or Gwen Stacy will. Spider-Man goes on the offensive, hurling himself towards Green Goblin, but his illness is slowing him down and Green Goblin gets in a few solid hits. 
Spider-Man realizes that he can't win this fight and tries to save Gwen so they can get to safety and elude the Green Goblin. He manages to knock Norman Osborn off balance and goes for Gwen, but he's still too slow, and just as he picks up his girlfriend, Green Goblin zips towards them on his jet-flying platform. He crashes into Spider-Man, who drops Gwen as he collapses. Gwen, unconscious, rolls off the edge of the tower and starts falling towards the water below. Spider-Man desperately shoots webbing at her, and one strand catches her leg. Gwen snaps back up from the force of the fall, and Spider-Man reels her in, but when he holds her, he realizes that she isn't breathing. In disbelief, he keeps trying to tell her that she's safe, that he rescued her. Green Goblin, hovering nearby, starts taunting his foe, rubbing it in that the force of the web snapped her neck as she fell, and then was jolted back up. Spider-Man flips out and threatens to kill Green Goblin. He gently places Gwen's body on a dock below the bridge and hurls himself at Norman Osborn. His illness is overcome by rage, and he starts pummeling Green Goblin all over the George Washington Bridge. Goblin manages to smash Spider-Man into one of the bridge's massive cables and flees the scene while Peter Parker reorients himself and web-slings back up to the bridge. And web-slings back up to the top of the bridge. In the meantime, police have arrived on the scene and assume that Spider-Man killed Gwen Stacy. Peter yells at everyone to back off and finally has a chance to mourn his dead girlfriend in the uneasy silence. He regrets hiding his secret life from her and the lost chance for them to build a life together. The police try to apprehend him for questioning and Spider-Man beats them off before slinging away to hunt down the Green Goblin. He gets to the Osborne residence and puts away his Spider-Man costume, determined to seek his revenge as Peter Parker. Norman isn't home and Harry is still tripping out, so Peter gets back into his costume. He slings over to the Daily Bugle and asks his editor for information about Norman Osborne's real estate portfolio. It turns out that Norman owns a warehouse that Peter didn't know about, and he heads right over. The Green Goblin lurks in the decrepit depths of the warehouse, ranting to himself and waiting for Spider-Man. He prepares an ambush, but the web-slinger gets the drop on him. Spider-Man destroys Goblin's jet-flying platform, so Goblin starts taunting him about the death of Gwen Stacy. Not only is this in poor taste, it also enrages Spider-Man. He pummels Green Goblin, beating him nearly to death, but no matter how furious Peter Parker is, he's still a good guy. He steps away from Goblin, mortified that he almost committed murder. Green Goblin, unfortunately, is less concerned with lapsed morality and summons a remote-controlled jet flyer. The flying platform zips towards them, its sharp nose aimed squarely at Spider-Man's back as he stands over Norman Osborn. But at the last second, the spidey sense starts tingling and Spider-Man ducks. The jet flyer zips over him and impales the Green Goblin. Spider-Man is stunned. He expects to feel some relief or sense of closure, but just feels empty. Peter Parker walks away, burned out and without purpose, even though he technically got his revenge. The issue ends with Mary Jane trying to comfort him. The devastated hero tries to send her away, hoping for a moment alone. But Mary Jane stays, understanding that no one should be alone when tragedy rips their life apart. Although these issues suffered from pretty much the same thing every comic book before the mid-80s suffered from, with too much exposition and way too omniscient narration, as well as some stiff dialogue, it was still a remarkably well-told story in two issues. The emotional impact of Gwen Stacy's death, Spider-Man's subsequent rage and almost going over the line, it all played pretty well. Apparently this run of Amazing Spider-Man was, I think, something like 700 issues long, and my roommate Andrew said that he read about 200 of them before giving up. 
I've only read these two, but I can kind of see why the down issues would be down enough that it would keep you from wanting to go on. Although there's enough good stuff in these two issues that I can also see why he read 200 of them. The story started off tense, went to tragic, and then got kind of deflated, but in a good way. The fact that it ended just like the Spider-Man movie was kind of cool. I can see why people were so excited about that movie in a different way now than when I saw it and was just excited on its own merits. The art by Gil Kane is pretty good. I don't think it's particularly unique for the era. In fact, I would say that if you opened any comic book in the 70s, chances are it would look relatively similar to this. That being said, he draws combat really well. All of the scenes with Spider-Man fighting the Green Goblin look pretty good, considering that they're almost 50 years old. It's interesting that Conway and Kane were allowed to handle a story of this magnitude. Neither one of them did more than a few dozen issues on Amazing Spider-Man, and it was, I'm assuming, Marvel's flagship title at the time. So it's pretty cool that they were allowed to kill off Gwen Stacy. Apparently, Stan Lee doesn't even remember giving them permission to do it. They asked him if they could, and he just said something like, yeah, sure, whatever, and got out of the office. But then when he got back after it was published, he just thought, oh my god, why would I allow them to do anything like that? I'm paraphrasing, but that was more or less Stan Lee's reaction. But the seemingly inadvertent permission to kill off Gwen Stacy certainly had a large impact across Marvel and comic books generally. Flash fact, although there's no official ending of the Silver Age of comic books and beginning of the Bronze Age of comic books, the story arc is generally considered the marker that ends the Silver Age and begins the darker, nastier Bronze Age. And even though there are a couple of pages in these two issues that make you shake your head and wonder why Conway would want to describe a warehouse for a full page, the overall story definitely has that oomph when you read it, and you realize that these things aren't always for kids. Alright, that's it for this week's episode of Batman v. Batuman. If you have any comments, criticisms, or suggestions for next week's uninformed Marvel review, let me know on Twitter at Batman v. Batuman. If you like the music, check out more like it at seedmole.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week. I am pretentious. I am always right. I am Batuman. <laughs>